you see some of the prices, especially on like the strands and whatnot that around your neck and you're just like, holy hell, that's that's a house deposit or uh, that could be the whole house. The, the reason why most people won't know about it is because only 59 of these aircraft were ever built. It was, it was kind of designed and made to be the kind of Wall Street commuter, you know, flying people in and out of Wall Street and out to their beautiful homes. I'm Nick, and you're listening to the Niche Aviation Podcast. Mainstream aviation is broken and boring. Manufacturers, airlines, and investors prioritize growth and profit over principles and their customers. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing guests who are changing this perception. These businesses challenge existing ways of working. These businesses prioritize customer experience. These businesses tell great stories. These are their stories. Welcome back to the second episode of the Niche Aviation Podcast. Before I start, I'm going to give you some useful context. In this episode, I speak to Dan Bolton. Dan is a pilot from an Australian company called Pespaley. Pespaley's main business is the farming of pearls. Pespaley's pearls are incredibly rare and exclusive. As an example, one of their most expensive necklaces recently sold for $2.8 million. Before the 1990s, the workers on these farms would have to travel by ship, and spent long periods of time away from their families. In the early 1990s, Perspalia explored the ideas of flying their crew out using float planes. However, they faced two specific problems. One, pearl farms are located in incredibly remote areas of northwest Australia. Two, the aircraft would need to be able to carry more than 10 people in addition to all their food and equipment. Unfortunately, there are no modern-day aircraft that can meet this criteria. As a result, Perspaley's solution was to purchase an aircraft called a Grumman Mallard. The Mallard is an amphibious aircraft which is capable of carrying up to 17 people and flying over 1,000 miles. What makes this story even more interesting? The plane was built in the 1940s and is nearly 80 years old. I hope you enjoy the episode. Dan, it's great to see you. I'm a massive fan of your podcast and your Instagram. So if anyone's listening to this and you should definitely, if you want to learn more about Dan, first of all, look at his podcast because it's amazing. It'd be great to learn more about yourself before we talk about Pess Bailey. Can you just explain how you got into flying? Yeah, thanks for having me, Nick. Uh, awesome to uh, spend some time with you and, and have a chat. Yeah, I got into flying uh, when I was... Uh, probably about 16 years old, I think. Um, my old man had a Cessna 172 from when I was about 12. He then upgraded that and started his own seaplane company when I was about 16 at the Geelong waterfront down uh, in Geelong there, which is where I'm from, which is about an hour's southwest of Melbourne. That timing of dad starting that seaplane company kind of led to me chasing or, or thinking more heavily about aviation. My old man wanted uh, a bit of help over summer with his seaplane business, kind of selling selling some seats, and and uh, so went down there and got my float plane endorsement and started my first job with him 
uh, about two years after kind of starting my training. So that's how I got into aviation. Does he still run his float plane business now? No. So that company um, is a bit of a disaster. There was a pilot he put on for another summer. They, Dad had upgraded the plane to a, an amphib. It was just on straight floats when I flew it. They'd returned, the pilot had returned from a refueling trip at a local aerodrome, only about five minutes flight from the waterfront there and flew over the top and um, left the gear down and came in and landed with the gear down on the water and flipped the airplane upside down right in front of my dad's eyes and that was the end of the business. You finish working for your dad. What, what? Where did you go from there? What was the next step? I was really falling in love with seaplanes and I targeted probably Australia's most famous seaplane operator which is Air Whitsunday uh, operating out of the beautiful Whitsunday Islands. Went up there on multiple occasions over the span of about a year to show my face and eventually was lucky enough to score a job interview and with the help of a beautiful PowerPoint presentation which was uh, a, a, the young um, unknown pilot, you know, didn't have any idea of how to do a job interview. I thought I'd bring a PowerPoint presentation into it. You know, I think they all sat there and were just a bit, bit kind of bewildered at what was happening in front of them and uh, uh, they seemed to like it and I kind of got the, got the gig. So how long were you at with Sunday for then? Stayed there for about four and a half years. So uh, really love that place. It was a small little town, Early Beach, beautiful weather. The flying involved flying people out to Australia's best beach, Whitehaven Beach, sitting on the beach, pouring champagne for an hour and then flying out to the Great Barrier Reef where we um, had our own little semi-submersible snorkeling vessel where we dock the plane to that and then tie the plane off and then you'd become the boat captain and drive all the way down into the the snorkeling lagoon and take people snorkeling the Great Barrier Reef in this private little lagoon. So it really was a, a dream come true, especially for a you know, 21-year-old when I got the job. I had a mate that I used to work for in the Whitsundays. He was flying the Mallard at Paspali and he told me about a guy who had just quit and kind of worded me up and said, look, mate, I think you know now's the time to, to polish up the resume and, and send it through because I, I think there could be a job coming shortly and you know, I think you'd be a front runner if you put your put your name down for it. So, yeah, so I did that, and um, after a few months of kind of uh, interviews and waiting for them to to kind of decide on the fact that they wanted a pilot, um, eventually a position available, and yeah, got the job for that one. So that's actually a really good segment to my next question because when I first found out about you and I approached you, I think generally when I'm looking for this podcast is either interesting businesses or interesting aircraft doing interesting stuff. Paspalia is a company flying people out to the Pearl Farms and then you tell everyone that it's flying on 1940s aircraft like the Grumman. That's incredible. So maybe if I start and we'll approach both, but if we start with <laughs> the Grumman, right, I, I guess most sure. people on this podcast won't know what a Grumman mallard is. Um, maybe if you can just give me a bit of history behind it and wh- why it exists. It's, a, it's an incredible aircraft. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Uh, well, pr- probably the the reason why most people won't know about it is because only fifty nine of these aircraft were ever built. They were built back in nineteen forty seven. They were built after the success of the Grumman Goose, which was also a twin engine flying boat. It was a little bit smaller, so they built this this larger thirteen seat flying boat called the Grumman Mallard. And then at the same time, they also made the Grumman Albatross, which is uh, once again even bigger, which can hold, I believe, you know, over 27 people total. So Grumman was, is an American company founded 
basically in Bethpage, New York, or that's where they were when you know the the Mallard was built. It was it was kind of designed and made to be the kind of Wall Street commuter, you know, flying people in and out of Wall Street and out to their beautiful homes, maybe in the Hamptons or you know getting around those areas. And you remember, you know, post World War Two. There was not really that many airfields, you know, and and flying boats back in that time were quite common. So the Mallard was this new Butte private kind of flying boat that was going to be, you know, used like like that. But then, obviously, uh, one of the things that happened post World War Two as well was more runways were being created all around, especially the United States. There was a surplus of aircraft for for uh, like transport aircraft that were starting to be used more and more. It didn't really take off as what you know what they thought it would, so that's why fifty nine were ever built. Yeah, so they're they've been flown in in the Whit Sundays at uh, the Air Whit Sunday company that I mentioned, and then all of them have kind of come to Pass Bailey about thirty years ago, and they found that this this aircraft was basically the perfect aeroplane for the role that they need to have in their company. So much so that they've invested a fair bit of money. Uh, into making sure that this aeroplane is as safe as possible. They re-engined and, and basically redesigned the aeroplane to its own type certificate. So there are three types of Mallards basically now, the original piston, the Frakes turbine, and then our three Mallards are completely unique as, as what we call the Australian turbine. So that, I guess that's a little bit of a history on, on the Mallard. What makes it the perfect aircraft for you guys? It's a combination of speed and payload. So where our pearl farms are located in, in the Kimberley region of WA, our main base is uh, in Darwin, uh, which is in the Northern Territory. So we're regularly flying these long routes up to an hour and a half, sometimes over two and a half hours to get to these pearl farms. They're so isolated, these areas, and we've got to be able to take sometimes 12 passengers and gear uh, into these farms over such a long distance. So there's, there's no other flying boat or float plane out there at the moment that could do the job that the Mallard does. Modern aircraft, there isn't really anything and now you're flying a roughly 80-year-old aircraft. Is there is there a shelf life? Uh, I'd have to say probably not for that because of the fact that they've been around for 70 years and here we are still talking about them. Obviously, the engine is is one of the most reliable engines in the world being the, the Pratt & Whitney PD6 series. So you've always got the reliability there. I kind of feel like as long as the airframe is is well looked after maintenance-wise, there's no reason why it shouldn't. Parts are becoming quite a big issue with uh, obviously, you know, 59 ever built. There's not a lot of parts around to start with. but So we're having to get a lot of stuff remanufactured from from scratch. Maybe that's quite interesting if we take a step back in the, the actual type yep. of flying that you guys do on these mallards. What does that look like? Generally, the type of flying, we're, we're departing Darwin International Airport every day. We're based there. So departing the runway, obviously it's an amphibian, so we can be on the land there. We will depart, head off, uh, like I said, for about anywhere from about hour and 45 to two and a half hours to get to the first farm or, or whatever farm we're going to. And then... Um, it's a landing on the water. We shut down the left engine because that's the side where the door is. The right engine will just stay running and that's basically a contingency. You know, you don't want to be sitting on the water. Let's say you've had a, a flat battery and you've only been running off the generators the whole time or you shut that second one down all of a sudden you're just a, 
a floating 1947 boat. It's uh, it's got nowhere to go. There's, there's obviously two crew as well, two pilots. So the the first officer will go back and uh, open the door there, and the boat will dock against the plane. And uh, his job there, the first officer, is to just kind of make sure that the plane is safe and with the docking of the boat and everything. And then the crew, because they're so used to it, they all do the transfer with gear and stores and whatnot so they'll pass that all through the airplane and get themselves all organized and then once the new crew come on we shut the door and start the left engine and you know do our checks and take off and there might be another couple of water stops along that route uh, that we need to kind of drop in and out of when it's harvest time there's a lot more stuff to do so we're kind of yeah maybe dropping into a few farms at once sometimes it's just a return trip to darwin so we don't spend a lot of time on the water, unfortunately. We do have day waits every now and again. Like it was only a couple of days ago that I had about a four-hour wait at Curry Bay and you kind of just go onto the farm there, have some lunch and you know, you're looking up at this beautiful prehistoric rock formations around you and complete isolation, turquoise waters and you know, crocodile-infested water as well. It's a, it's a pretty surreal locations, that's for sure. And do ever, all three of your aircraft fly every day? What's kind of like your utilization on those aircraft? No, so um, we've generally got for farming uh, flights, we do three flights a week, just one aeroplane. That's pretty consistent all year round because that's, as I mentioned, that's kind of your crew changes and your stores runs. We're, we've, we're on standby a lot for medivacs in case someone's injured out at the farm. And then when it comes to the charter season, the dry season, we can, we can have three planes airborne at once if it's busy, but we generally have one plane kind of going every day sometimes a couple of days a week you might have two planes going to different charters uh, locations and whatnot so it's there's not a lot of hours put on these airplanes but in saying that because of the distances we fly as well you know you might have one flight but still you know five hours worth of flying and that's your kind of mission done i guess for the day most people listening to this will have a very limited understanding or no understanding what Pespedi does so it'd be interesting to to talk about that but if that's right with you Paspaley's a family-owned business that produces basically the, the the best pearls in the world. These pearls, yeah, they're highest quality, I think, and there's so much effort that goes into producing these pearls. They're, like I said, they're produced and farmed in, in the most pristine waters uh, of Australia and, and remote areas of Australia as well. When you see... You know the prices, especially as a as a young guy trying to get into aviation, uh, and you step into a Paspaley shop, you you're kind of blown away by first of all the shop, which in Australia they're they're incredible. All of the the stores, the showrooms, you see some of the prices, especially on like the strands and whatnot that around your neck, and you're just like, holy hell, that's that's a house deposit, or uh, that could be the whole house. But when you see the effort that goes into making sure that there's no you know stone unturned to to make these these pearls or to produce them you know and and it's such a a risky game you know like you know i'm I'm not part of this section of paspaley you know i mean but you you open up a shell after two years of kind of looking after it hoping that there's going to be this beautiful pearl in there and sometimes they, they they open up and there's nothing and you know that's it's a huge risk I could I could only imagine, but yeah, there's obviously a huge research and development team that 
kind of go in and try and find what the perfect kind of conditions are to having these um, shells make um, these pearls. And um, yeah, like I said, the best pearls in the world for sure. Um, I've got some for my wife already. <laughs> we regularly speak with the the Paspaley family and um, they're all really nice people and yeah. So so the, all the farms are in the north part of Australia and outside actually quite far away from land and how, is that um, right? They're not they're not actually that far away from land. A lot of them are actually very close to land. Um, they're in bays and kind of inlets and what. But if you Google the Kimberley region, you just understand that it is absolutely a. There's nothing around there. Do you know what I mean for hundreds and hundreds of miles but one of the biggest things is the tide so the tide in that area can be up near nine meters so what that does in these bays and inlets is allows a lot of water with nutrients to flush through the pearls or the shells so that's probably one of the i guess the keys to to making sure that they're getting uh, a lot of fresh nutrients in those in those areas so that's one of the reasons why we're in that in that area so given that they've been operating for nearly 100 years or over 100 years w- what made them get the the grum and mallard what was there before how did they get to the farms um so there's another town in western australia called Broome, uh, which is the one i was talking about with my old man being over there that town is a little bit closer to the farms than than where darwin is it's still a fair distance but so I think they used to run seaplanes from Broome. I think there was an otter at one stage, some caravans, beavers, just chartered mainly. I don't actually know, but I could only imagine that it would be you go out and, and you stay on the boat for a couple of months and then you come back to Darwin and have a have an extended break and then go back out there again. So I can I imagine that the um that the way that the pearls are produced through the shell has changed dramatically, you know over that 100 years as well. I mean, back in the – before World War II, there was a huge demand for mother of pearl, which is the, the actual shell itself, because of buttons. So they used to make buttons out of the, the shell. And then the plastic button was invented and, you know, all of a sudden the, the, the demand for mother of pearl had just dropped over, overnight. So there was a complete change in how they had to, to do that. So And that's one of the cool things about I think about the company is the history of – over 100 years, you know, they celebrated that last year, I believe, to to withstand all of those changes over such a long period of time and, and still produce what they're producing today. And I think when we spoke before, you are saying that Paspali, well, they've grown in pearls, but they've also specialized across. You can go on a trip on the Mallard, is that correct? The actual Paspali company have so many different ventures. There's a winery. There's a lot of stuff in the background that I, even I don't really know about as part of the aviation sector, yeah, my wife Jenna actually was. She's now a business manager of the whole of Paspali Aviation, but she came on board a couple of years ago to be commercial development. So one thing they've recognised is the fact that we do have the aeroplanes and the pilots sitting around available to do some more charter work. So they've um, really invested a fair bit of uh, time and resources into developing some some tours and. Um, some putting some people in place to to try and create a bit of a tourism um, market. So, yeah, we're doing this thing called a, a safari, a Kimberley safari, which is like a five night tour of the the Kimberley region, going to some of the really nice camps, which are not just camps; they're beautiful, absolutely five star resorts almost in the Kimberley, completely isolated, and using the Grumman Mallard to fly 
all around that region, starting at Darwin and finishing in Broome. Those safaris in Kimberley sound incredible. Do you guys do them all year round now? So last year we we started with our first kind of trials of them. We did, I think, two safaris and, and then we had a private one as well, which we ended up booking with for four people. But then this year we had, I think, six booked, uh, six return to Broome. So it was going to be a really great season. Uh, and then obviously COVID hit and we didn't end up doing any. So um, at the moment, we're trying to time it in with our kind of harvest season so that the guests can go out and experience what it's like to be on the Pearl Farm and they get to go and, and pick up a shell and, and cut it open and see what's inside and, you know, have some pearl meat and, you know, be aboard a, a working pearl vessel. So we're Honestly, trying to... Honestly, I'm moment- settled. I'm coming over as soon <laughs> as I can afford it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it really is a, a kind of once-in-a-lifetime flight, I think. You know, and in this region, it's it's not a cheap region anyway. You, you know, a, a kind of two-week vessel um, through the region being on the water the whole time, something like fifteen, sixteen thousand $16,000 Australian. So um, we're about half the price for probably a quarter of the time, but you get to see it all from the air. You're landing, uh, you know, on the water. It's just... I think it's it's heaps more exciting, and it's look it's designed for the time poor people, you know, who who don't have two weeks, but they've got maybe five days that they can put towards a, a, sh- a short holiday and have the money to go out there and, and see this beautiful part of the world. Honestly, it sounds dreamy. How can people find out more about that or Paspali as well? Just probably the best way is Google uh, Paspali. Um, yeah, <laughs> for the. Uh, for the main company and, and I think all of the pearls are available for online purchasing as well. But uh, for the aviation sector, I, I, we don't really have much social media about it. There's no separate um, website. It's through the Paspaley web um, page. I think if you just search Paspaley Aviation, you'll find it. Um, and it's generally just a, an email contact to Jenna. Um, her email, if, if anyone's listening and wants to actually get in contact, is Bolton. B-O-L-T-O-N at paspaley.com.au and you can uh, just get in contact with her and she can send you the itinerary. Other than that, uh, if you want to get in contact, just find me on Instagram and and send me a message because I get back to everyone and happy to share uh, your contact details with with Jenna. Just on that, it's it's that mallard guy, isn't it, on Instagram? Yeah, at, at that mallard guy. Got a podcast which is incredible. So, if people are interested to learn more about your aircraft, but any seaplanes, any other niche seaplanes, then definitely check out your podcast as well. What's that? What's that one called? Uh, on the step with that Mallard guy. So you can find it wherever you find uh, podcasts. Uh, yeah, it's basically just a, a podcast all about seaplanes, float planes, and flying boats. So um, try and find interesting people all around the world to just talk about float planes because that's what I love, and and uh, I think that's uh, a pretty good niche and. There's some really cool stories out there. So That's awesome. Thanks a lot, Dan. That's been amazing. Honestly, thank you very much. Happy days, Nick. Cheers. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. As you can probably tell, this series is very much a work in progress. There's a lot I want to improve and there's also a lot I need to improve. For example, I've spent the last hour recording a 30-second outro and I'm still struggling. Anyway... <laughs> This is a personal plea. Please give me some feedback and also send me an email and tell me what you think. All my contact details are in the show notes below. 
I would really appreciate your help. Thanks again, and I will see you all next week.